Hey, uh, just continuing in our study in 1 Corinthians last Sunday, we looked at the second portion of Paul's defense of the biblical gospel in 1 Corinthians 15. We were in 5 through 11. Those are the verses we were in. He described uh, witnesses to the gospel and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He described the transforming power of the gospel. He used his own life, how he was like a persecutor of the church. He went from being like the Nero of his day the worst type of person to an apostle. So he talked about the power of the gospel. And um, he also presented or talked about the gospel being the main message or message of the entire church. It's not like the church has, you know, competing gospels per se. It has one gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so this is what he, in his kind of final defense of the gospel as the death, burial, and resurrection. Those are the three things that he talked about. In the next section, Paul begins his landmark defense of the resurrection of Christ and future resurrection of believers. And we say this because this was the doctrine or reality that was in, called into question in this church. They were having trouble with this. The future resurrection of believers in particular, that seems to be the doctrine that was primarily under attack in the Corinthian church. It's just weird that they would believe in the resurrection of Christ and yet have difficulty with or even reject, in the extreme cases, the resurrection of themselves or believers as a whole. So for whatever reason, some parishioners in that church, they, they weren't just questioning their own resurrection in the future. They were rejecting it altogether. And I, I suspect that it was the influences of bad company, because that's exactly what Paul mentions down in verse 33. You remember the, the verse, right? We've used this verse in a, a thousand other ways, but it's bad company that corrupts good morals or bad company that corrupts good behavior. And so I think what's happened here in this church is they had all these ties to the carnality and worldliness in Corinth. And... They, they were under or in friendship or in relationship with some of the local philosophers. There's the bad company. And, and they were being influenced by that bad company, and it was corrupting their doctrinal beliefs. It was corrupting their view of their own resurrection because Corinthians and anyone who was under the Platonistic uh, philosophy, which almost everyone was in the world then, you just didn't believe in resurrection. You didn't believe in these sorts of things. And I'll explain why more in a little bit. But that was the issue, I think. Bad company was corrupting good morals or good theology in this church. Now they're rejecting their own resurrection or the future resurrection or even resurrection as a whole. And uh, they had become, some of the Corinthians had become kind of like the religio-political Sadducees of that day. The Sadducees were um, a political party primarily centered in Jerusalem. They were the counterpart or um, we would say contemporaries of the Pharisees. The Pharisees believed in supernatural things. They believed in resurrection. They believed in angels. The Sadducees did not. And they were the ruling class or ruling party. Like when we think of Caiaphas, the high priest that had Jesus put to death, he was not a Pharisee. Pharisees were against Jesus as anyone else was, but he was a Sadducee. So they, they made up the Sanhedrin. They were kind of the religious political leaders, and they rejected as a whole all things supernatural and resurrection. And so now we've got 
Christians in this church who are like Sadducees. They're sad, you see, because that's what happens when you deny the resurrection, right? That's the corniest Christian joke I've ever heard. And I was destined to repeat it. So they're like the Sadducees. They're rejecting these things. And um, it's just a bizarre phenomenon that's happening here. And among all the other carnal issues, this is just one of many that Paul is having to address now. He's defended the gospel because when you reject resurrection, you're attacking the gospel. So he's stated what the gospel is, stated exactly what it is, talked about what it does in a sense, and now he's going to hone down or focus in on that third component of the gospel, the resurrection of Christ, and then, of course, our own resurrection. So that's what he's talking about now. Uh, if you guys could turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, we'll be focused on 12 to 15 today. So 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 15. Um, I've got a seven-point sermon with a brief introduction in verse 12, but we're only going to deal with four today, four points today, and Lord willing, we'll deal with the other three next week. As usual, I tried to bang all this out and do it all, and I was just, there's just no way I couldn't do it all in one shot. So we'll look at four points today. I want to pray for God's help before we get to work. Uh, of all the sections that we've studied together in this book, chapter 15 and the defense of the gospel and the defense of resurrection may be the most important in the entire epistle. Obviously, the sexual immorality of chapter 3 and all the things that they've been dealing with, all critical issues for Christians, but we're now talking about a gospel doctrine that when we mess with that, we've got nothing. I mean, there's always been messiness and struggling with sin and these sorts of things in the church, but when a church starts giving itself over to, you know, rejecting clear biblical truth like this, doctrinal truth that's saving truth, you're in a mess of trouble. So let's pray for God's help because we need to understand these things. Lord, uh, we come to you, humble ourselves. We thank you for the worship so far. We've worshiped you through announcements and through song and through fellowship before the service and through reading and, and a call to worship. And we're so thankful for all that. Now we're going to worship you through uh, the ministry of your word. You're going to speak to us today. This is not me speaking. It's no one else speaking, but you through your word. And I pray that we would have ears to hear. We would have hearts to receive, minds to understand, and make us willing to embrace, to receive the truth that you will share with us today, to receive it and to believe it and to stand on it. This is life or death stuff here, Lord, and so it's very serious. And um, all truth is serious, but some truths are, they, they determine whether a person is saved or not. And there's a lot of truths that, that aren't aimed at that. And so this is real serious stuff. We need to really listen and pay attention and um, believe the gospel. And that's something that only you can really inspire and do in us as you change our hearts. But Lord, just make us willing now and be glorified during this time. Help us to understand uh, the resurrection even more so and the implications of resurrection uh, and to understand what happens if, if it's not a reality. So uh, we place ourselves under your authority now and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Let's pick up where we left off. That would be verse 12. The very next thing after laying out his case for the gospel, the very next thing Paul says to the Corinthians is this. And this is kind of a shocking statement. It's kind of a question. It's just kind of a bizarre thing. And now he really gets to the heart of what's going on in this passage. But he says this in 12. He says, and he's just proclaimed the gospel over and over in the previous text. And now he says, 
Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, that's what I've been telling you. That's what you've always believed. That's the message you heard beforehand, right? He says, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? If this is what we've been proclaiming, if this is what you initially believed, if this is what you've been standing on this whole time, that's the context, how can you now say that it doesn't exist? So th this is where Paul literally, like if, when you do the first handful of verses, this is where he lets the cat out of the bag and tells you what the doctrinal issue is in this church. Among other things, it's this particular issue. The error is that they are now saying there is no resurrection of the dead. And that's just absolutely nuts when our gospel clearly says there is. So he's kind of, he's, his mind is kind of blown here. And it's, there's no sarcasm or anything here. He's just saying, how can you even entertain such a notion? Now, what's really weird is that the majority of these Corinthian believers were in agreement concerning the resurrection of Christ. Remember, Paul laid it out earlier and he said, it's the gospel in which you stand on. So we can't really argue that they were opposing the resurrection of Christ. Some of them may have been. They affirmed that Christ rose from the dead for the most part. That's the message they received. That's the message they were standing on, Paul says, and that's the message you're being saved by. He already said that in the previous text. So they affirmed that Jesus had risen on the third day. They were affirming. When you affirm that he rose on the third day, what else are you affirming by default? That he's alive. He's not a dead savior. He's alive now. So they, it seems that they believed in the resurrection of Christ. They affirmed that he rose on the third day. They were standing on that truth as well as his death and burial. They were affirming that he was alive they believed the resurrection facet of the gospel in a sense when it applies to Jesus, but they disagreed on the resurrection of the dead and more particularly the resurrection of believers. So if you were in the Corinthian church, one might argue that we absolutely believe that Jesus rose. And we simultaneously believe that it has nothing to do with us rising, which is just a very strange perspective. They accepted Christ's resurrection, but denied their own future resurrection. Talk about a hopeless group. This is the apostle's concern in the whole passage, really, but in particular in verse 12. He's saying, we proclaimed Christ as raised from the dead, and, and you all believed our message. Verse 11, how can you now say there is no resurrection of the dead? How can you agree with this, but disagree with that? It's the same thing is what he's saying. How could the Corinthians affirm the resurrection of Christ and yet deny the resurrection of themselves and other believers and even those who aren't believers under judgment? How, how could they do that? Well, as I said, I think it was the influence of outsiders, that bad company. Who's the bad company? It's the local philosophers. For some reason, these Christians could go to a worship service on a Sunday morning and then follow that with lunch and then follow that by going down to the area Pagus or wherever the local philosophers were and then listen to messages from them. How wise is that? I mean, that doesn't make any sense, but that's what they would do. They were taking in information from everybody. 
And that's a very Greco-Roman thing to do. They're very much about gnosis or knowledge. And so they, they like what the Christian says. They like what Paul says, for instance, and they like what the philosopher said. And so this is, this is them. It's a very hodgepodgey kind of, I give my, my attention to multiple people. They had this bad company. I think that's how it came because this is the only explanation that I have. And Paul addresses it in the context in verse 33. Bad company ruins good morals. Some of the Corinthians kept bad company with toxic individuals who taught them to embrace the spirit of the age and to simultaneously reject fundamental Christian doctrines such as resurrection. The view of the local Platonistic philosophers was a kind of Gnosticism. That was the, if you were going to give it a title, it was probably a kind of Gnosticism, a kind of hidden hidden superior knowledge and, and in Gnosticism we know and we've learned over the years that spiritual things like our souls are good but physical things like our physical bodies are evil okay so the spirit of a man or the soul of a man is a good thing but the body and the physical body and all of its features and components is evil so spiritual is good material is evil so that's Gnostic belief, and it comes from Plato. It comes from his philosophies. So the way that people in Paul's day, more particularly in Corinth, viewed things was that spiritual is good, spirit is good, soul is good, and physical body is evil. And they even saw and believed that the physical body, Dave's physical body, Patrick's mine, Cameron's, Rachel's, everyone in here, that our physical body is bad, but the spirit or soul in us is good. But what's happening is, is that this body is like an incarceration for the soul. The soul is imprisoned inside of this evil body. This is literally their view. This is the view of Gnosticism. This is why they deny the humanity of Christ and other important facets or doctrines or realities. Because if Christ was in a human body, then he must have been evil and can't be our savior. This is the way they think. This is the way they process. So think about that for the moment. Your soul is good, but your physical body is bad. Your soul is inside your physical body. Therefore, it's imprisoned by your flesh. This is the way they thought. This is Corinthian thinking, okay? This is Gnostic thinking. This is the teaching of the Corinthian Platonistic philosophers. So in their mind, in their philosophy, salvation would be the liberation of the soul from the physical body. When does that happen? When someone dies, right? When someone dies, the soul departs the physical body, the physical body goes into the tomb, and the soul goes, according to Scripture, to either of two places. Well, firstly, it goes to judgment, and then it goes to either heaven or hell. But in their mind, salvation is the liberation of the soul from the physical body. Are you now entertaining the implications of that? What does resurrection mean? It means the rejoining of soul with body. In the Gnostic mind, in the Gnostic philosophy, in the Gnostic theology, that would be to reincarcerate, to re-imprison the soul. Why would the soul go back into its jail? It has to be, salvation is for it to be liberated and freed. It can never go back to a physical body. This is their belief. Do you understand what I'm saying here? This is their thinking. 
Resurrection is literally the reuniting of soul with body. The body is raised from the grave. The soul flies down or up and re-enters and reanimates that physical body. That's what resurrection is. In the Gnostic's mind, this would be tetamount to the soul going back to jail. That would be the most evil thing that could happen to a good person. Do you understand why they reject resurrection? We don't want our souls going back to a physical incarceration. This is their thinking. This is their mindset. Um, Hodge described the Gnostic mindset in his commentary. It's good. He says, the soul having once been emancipated from the defiling encumbrance of the body, it is never to be re-imprisoned. That's Gnosticism. That's the beliefs of most Corinthians. That's the teaching of the philosophers. Now, what happens if that kind of teaching comes into a church through bad company? The first thing that happens is people start rejecting resurrection because resurrection is actually counterproductive. It's a bad thing. We don't want our souls going back into these prisons. That's the thinking. For them, resurrection means reincarceration, right? Uh, you know, your soul is like a repeat offender. It ends up going back to prison, and they would never want something like that to happen. Now, that's why Gnostics despise and reject resurrection. That's the very reason why they reject it. In Paul's day, the Corinthian philosophers and most Gnostics and people of the age and that believed in the spirit of the age, they had an actual saying. This is a saying taken from historical record. This is what they said. The hope of the resurrection is the hope of swine, of pigs. So you get a sense for how these people in this particular area, and sadly some in the church, felt about resurrection. Now in Corinth, there was no shortage of these anti-resurrection views. The, this poison, it was just pervasive. You could hear it in down at the Areopagus or wherever the philosophers shared their ideas. Sadly, you could hear some of it in this church, in the Corinthian church, because it had crept in. It was everywhere, and it was in this church because of what Paul says down in 33, bad company. Bad company brought it in. So, so that's the belief of that day and age, and it's, it's mo mostly a Greco-Roman idea, and it's, it's from Plato, and it formed Gnosticism, and it rejects the resurrection because resurrection means that this beautiful, wonderful, holy soul is going back into a morbid, decrepit, terrible body. Therefore, we must reject resurrection. That's the thinking, and that's what Paul is ultimately addressing here. Now, somehow the Corinthians knew that if they went too far with the rejection of resurrection, they would end up rejecting the resurrection of Christ and then according to Paul and the other apostles, they would not have salvation because that's an essential part of the message of salvation. So what they did was they picked and choosed, right? Well, well, we'll stand with the resurrection of Christ. Okay, that doesn't really fit with this Gnostic view, but we'll stand with that because we know that's a determiner of whether we're saved or not. But we don't have to go along with the rest of it, our own resurrection, because that definitely flies in the face of what Jimmy down at the Areopagus is saying. That flies in the face of my previous beliefs. That flies in the face of all the false religion around us. This is the mindset. This is what's going on. This is what Paul is addressing. This is why rejection or resurrection is under attack in this church. Gnosticism, it was there. Now in verses 13 to 19, Paul demonstrates that resurrection is not only possible but essential to the faith. 
by giving seven disastrous consequences that would result if there were no resurrection. And as I said, we'll just look at the first four and then we'll deal with the remaining three next week. Number one, I think it's already up on, well, we're going to put it up on the screen now. This is the, the first um, consequence. If there were no resurrection, Christ would not be risen. Plain and simple. Verse 13. Paul says it like this, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, it's a general term he's saying, then not even Christ himself has been raised. The first thing that he does here is he establishes an inseparable link between the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of everyone else. He's ultimately saying in this first point in verse 13 that the two are connected and linked. If you deny resurrection, you deny, even if it's only your own, you are simultaneously denying the resurrection of Christ. The two are inseparably linked. If he rose, there will be a resurrection. If there will be a resurrection, it's because he rose. That's what Paul is saying here. He's establishing a link. He's saying that if we adopt the Gnostic position and deny the resurrection of the dead, we simultaneously deny the resurrection of Christ. The two, in other words, go hand in hand. You cannot have one without the other. It's like Sinatra said, love and marriage. You've got to have both. If Christ was raised... Others will be raised. That's what he's saying here. And this is why Paul called Jesus the firstborn from the dead and the firstborn of many brethren. Colossians 1.18, Romans 8.29. As firstborn from the dead, Christ is the first person in history to be resurrected. Now you say to yourself, I don't think that's true because others were raised from the dead. They were raised from the dead, but they were not resurrected. Because when you're resurrected, you never die again, and you receive a glorified body. Who can you think of, according to Scripture or in the history of the world, that's ever gone through anything like that? Only Jesus. There were people who were raised from the dead when Jesus rose from the dead, but they rose to life and died later on, just as their life would end normally and naturally. Uh, Lazarus was raised from the dead, but he died again later. Resurrection means you are raised and you never, ever, ever taste physical death again. There's no spiritual death for you. There's no physical death. So Christ is the firstborn from the dead in that sense. He is the very first person and to date the only person to ever be resurrected into a glorified body. Nobody else has ever gone through that. Others were raised, but they were resuscitated, brought back to life. Lazarus. After, what, three or four days in the tomb, he stinketh. Christ was resurrected. He received an incorruptible and glorious body that will never, ever, ever experience physical death. It's over. Death, he conquered it. He smashed it. As firstborn of many brethren, Christ is the first person in a long line of brothers and sisters to be resurrected. He's the firstborn of many who will experience the same resurrection. His brothers and sisters, as Scripture calls them. He is the prototype for all believers. He was resurrected, and all who trust in him, his brothers and sisters, as it says in the text, shall also be resurrected. Biblically speaking, resurrection involves the resurrection of Christ, the resurrection of believers, and the resurrection of unbelievers. Since Christ was resurrected in glory... Believers shall be resurrected in glory unto eternal life. 
1 Corinthians 15, 43. It's just down in our text. John 5, 29a deals with this. And since Christ was raised from the dead or resurrected from the dead, unbelievers shall be resurrected for judgment unto eternal contempt. Daniel 12, 2, John 5, 29b. Point being that the Bible teaches Christ is resurrected, it teaches that believers will be resurrected, and it teaches that unbelievers will be resurrected. Therefore, how can the Corinthians possibly say there's no resurrection of anyone but Christ? In fact, Paul says that the resurrection of Christ is the guarantee of future judgment. Acts 17.31, this is a verse I like to quote from time to time. When Jesus exited the tomb, he was resurrected. He came out in a glorified state, a glorified body, and never taste death again. He smashed and conquered death. When he came out of that tomb, he came out not only in a glorified state, but as the judge with a capital G of the living and of the dead. 2 Tim 4.1. All judgment and authority has been given to him. John 5.22 and, of course, Matthew 28.18. Since he is the risen judge, he will surely raise believers and unbelievers alike to face him and to give an account on the day of judgment. Ecclesiastes 12, 14, Romans 14, 10 to 12, 1 Corinthians 3, 13, 2 Corinthians 5, 10. There's more verses, but that's enough to establish what I'm saying. Now, when we tamper with the resurrection in any kind of way, we are tampering with all of these things that I'm mentioning now because they're all interconnected. Uh, you, you must understand how essential the resurrection is to the whole of the Bible, to the whole of the New Testament, and to the whole of creation. If there is no resurrection, there is no renewal of all things. This world will just stay as it is and eventually just implode. Do you think it's getting better or worse? It doesn't seem like it's getting better to me. So, I mean, the resurrection is everything. It is the restoration of all things. It's not just the glorification of saints and the judgment of unbelievers. Everything is interconnected to resurrection. So, so you know, the Gnostic idea may seem cool and flashy like many of today's weird, worldly, carnal philosophies and ideas, but there is so much at stake here. You deny your resurrection. You deny the resurrection of Christ. You deny the implications are staggering. Let's just put it that way. You follow the logic here, Paul's logic. If the Corinthians deny their own resurrection, they deny Christ's resurrection. And if they deny Christ's resurrection, they deny the gospel, which is the only message of salvation. Amen? One cannot be saved unless they receive and stand on the death, on the burial, and upon the resurrection of Christ. That was back in verses 1 to 4. And one cannot deny their own resurrection because this is tantamount to denying Jesus' resurrection and all of the other implications of resurrection. This leads to absolute hopelessness. This is Paul's point here in verses 12 and more particularly in verse 13. This is what he's trying to drive home. It's not as simple as adopting a little bit of that fancy Gnosticism. When you deny the fact that you will be raised from the dead or anyone else, you are ultimately denying that Christ has risen. 
You are denying that he rose, and you are denying everything he accomplished when he rose, the conquering of sin, Satan, death, and hell. You just obliterated all of that. You have no gospel. You have no salvation. This is what Paul is saying here. Let's move to the second consequence. If there were no resurrection... Just think logically, wouldn't preaching the gospel be absolutely meaningless? Verse 14a, if there's no resurrection, we, we've got a dumb, worthless, meaningless gospel. He says it like this in verse A of 14, and if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. He just puts it as clearly as, as he can. Of course, he's attacking the idea of Christ not being raised because that's the result of you saying, I won't be raised. If I'm not raised, then Christ hasn't been raised. And if he hasn't been raised, we have a meaningless gospel because one of the main tenets of our gospel is the resurrection of Christ, the future hope of believers. This is all tied together. So the second consequence of there being no resurrection would be that preaching the gospel would be vain. It would be just completely meaningless. As Paul stated back in the same chapter in verses 3 to 4, the heart of the gospel is what? Christ's death, burial, and resurrection on our behalf. He died to pay for our sins. He was buried to settle our accounts. He rose so that we, through faith in him, could be justified before God, could be glorified at some point. If there were no resurrection, the whole gospel would be subverted. You lose the death and the burial. Or you just end up with a death and burial and Christ never comes out of the tomb and he's no better than Muhammad or Buddha or any of the other false messiahs. We have to have a risen Christ or it's gone. We're no better than any other religion if this is the case. This is the thing that's, that's really set Christianity apart from all the other religions. All their saviors are bones. But our Christ is seated at the right hand. So when we deny resurrection, we deny that. We deny where he's seated. We deny his sovereignty. We deny his kingship. We deny his lordship. We reject all of it. There's no resurrection. The whole gospel is toast. It's gone. Christ rested the validity of all his claims. And he made a lot of claims during his three and a half years of ministry. He rested the totality, the entire validity of totality of everything he said about himself and about what he would do and about what he would accomplish and what he would do in the future it's all based upon his resurrection all of it if he did rise then he is truly the son of god he is truly the savior of the world it, it means that his sacrifice has been accepted and god is being or has been propitious our sins have been covered is what that means. If he did not rise, then none of the things that Jesus claimed about himself or about anything would be true at all. And the gospel, of course, that we preach would be what? Meaningless. J-Mac says, without the resurrection, the good news would be bad news. And there would be nothing worth preaching. Nothing. Unless our Lord conquered sin and death, making a way for men to follow in that victory, there is no gospel to proclaim. The, the message that we preach would be nothing but morality, which sets people up for failure because we're not very good at it. We'd have absolutely no hope because it would be based entirely upon our performance. We lose everything 
when we jettison resurrection. That's Paul's point. So preaching the gospel would be useless and meaningless. The third consequence, some of these go faster. If there were no resurrection, faith in Christ would be worthless. Verse 14b, right? You're trusting in a dead Savior that cannot make you alive. Right? And he says like this in 14b, he says, our preaching would be in vain. And then he says this in 14b, and your faith is in vain. Just as no resurrection would make preaching the gospel meaningless, it would also make faith in Christ worthless. Just worthless. No, no, nothing there. No substance. Faith in such a gospel would be, as Paul says, in vain. The Greek word for vain is kinos. And it can be translated into English in other ways. Sometimes it, it means to be empty or fruitless or void of effect or to have absolutely no purpose whatsoever. In Acts 4.25, it's used to describe how the Gentiles rage and plot against God. All their efforts are kinos, fruitless. Mere mortal, sinful man is going to align himself against the sovereign God of the universe? That battle's not going to last a millisecond. Everything that Gentiles and men do against God is an exercise in futility because men are futile. And faith in Christ, if there's no resurrection, would be as worthless and as meaningless and as fruitless as men trying to fight God. If there were no resurrection, think of the implications here, the hall of the faithful in Hebrews 11 would actually not be the hall of those who have faith. You know what I'm talking about, right? Those who had faith in Hebrews 11. It wouldn't be the hall of the faithful. It would be the hall of the foolish for wasting their time by putting their trust in the Messiah or in Christ. Abel, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Moses, Rahab, David, the prophets, all the others, all together, all of the faithful and all the faithfulness that they exercised and everything they went through because of faith in the coming Christ would be fruitless and useless of nothing. It would have meant to nothing at all. They would have just been a bunch of fools. They would have been mocked and scourged and imprisoned because that's the saints of old, right? They went through a lot of stuff. They, they were mocked and they were scourged and they were imprisoned and they were stoned. We know uh, from history it seems that Isaiah, who was a man of faith in the coming Christ, he was put in a tree and sawn in half. Some of them were stoned to death. They were all afflicted. They were all ill-treated. Many were put to death and it would be for no reason whatsoever because their faith is meaningless. They went through all of that for nothing. All believers of all ages, if there's no resurrection, faith in Christ is useless, and all believers of all ages, they've believed and suffered for nothing. Nothing at all. To no advantage, to no avail. Point being, a dead Savior could not, cannot give life. Can't do it. So if you're trusting in a dead Savior like every other religion, that's an exercise in futility. 
I mean, think of the implications here. If we don't have a resurrection, we don't have a risen Christ, we don't have salvation, we're trusting in a pile of bones in a tomb. That's exactly what every other religion is doing. How hopeless, how meaningless, how futile. If we reject the resurrection of Christ, we're just in another false religion. Fruitless, worthless faith. Faith in Allah through Muhammad. Fruitless and useless. And they're dying for it over there. They don't have a resurrected Savior. They don't have one that could give them life. And that's what we would be if there was no resurrection of Christ. Christ would not be risen. The gospel we preach would be utterly useless. Faith is an exercise in futility. It's a total waste of time. Let's move to the fourth consequence. If there were no resurrection, witnesses and preacher teachers of the gospel would be nothing more than a bunch of liars. Verse 15. Yeah, everyone who's, who's going around and standing in pulpits and preaching this, every Christian who's going around and witnessing to their neighbors and friends at school or the workplace or talking about the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, anyone and everyone who's proclaiming the truths of this book, everyone who is preaching the resurrection is lying, is what Paul is saying. He'd be a liar himself because he just preached it back in a previous verse, in 1 through 4. It's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. I guess I'd be lying to you too is what he's saying. He says it like this in verse 15. You've, you've got what Christ isn't risen. You've got a gospel that's meaningless. You've got faith that is worthless. And he says not only that, but we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about, what, uh, about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that he, the dead are not raised. He's basically saying, we've, we've gone around and preached a lie. That's all we've done. If Christ isn't risen and we've told you that he's risen, then we're lying to you and we're misrepresenting God. Now, this is the exact position and view of of the other false religions and of Judaism, especially ancient Judaism. They, all the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everyone that was against Jesus and against the apostles and against early Christians and persecuted them, they all thought that they were spreading a lie and misrepresenting God by talking about Christ raised. He's saying, you know what, if there's no resurrection, they're all right and we're the liars. If there were no resurrection, then every person who claimed to have witnessed, remember what he talked about in the past section in verse 5, I think, verse 6, all these that witnessed Christ raised, he's saying that all those who actually witnessed him after his resurrection, within that 40-day period, he appeared to at least 560 or so people, probably more, but that's the testimony of Scripture. He's saying they're all liars. The 500 that he appeared, somehow 500 guys, men came together and conspired a really big fat lie because they didn't actually see him. That's what he's saying here. Every person who claimed to witness the risen Christ, and not just that, but every person who's ever preached the risen Christ, they're all nothing but liars, including Paul himself and all the other apostles and, and, and uh, Apollos and everyone else. 
This is a big, massive conspiracy. To deny the resurrection, any facet of it really, is to call the apostles and every other leader of the New Testament, early New Testament church, just, it's not just to call them like, you know, simply mistaken. They're just liars. They've been lying and spreading lies. And of course, those witnesses that have testified and witnesses in those days who preached the word and, and they've all done nothing but taught lies. And they were consequently for preaching the resurrection of Christ, they were maligned, beaten, imprisoned, often martyred, the witnesses and those who preached it in the early church, especially by Nero. And they all did it for nothing because it was just one big conspiracy and one big lie. It's amazing to me if you think about that logically. Most cult leaders aren't willing to really suffer for their false religion. Some are, most aren't. And if they do something like Jones down in Guyana or wherever it was, it's to kill everyone off, which is cowardice. But the implication of this, if they're going around spreading a lie, why would people subject themselves to such horror and terror for a lie? Why would they do that? I don't know about you, but I don't like suffering. I'm certainly not going to suffer for a lie. I don't want to suffer for the truth either, if I'm honest, but I'm not going to go around doing it for a lie. I'll spare myself. And, and yet all these people throughout all the history of the church, those who were even burned at the stake during the Reformation and everything, they all did it for a lie. Doesn't make much sense. Cult leaders won't usually do that. Liars don't do that. They don't want to suffer. Everyone's a liar. Although Paul doesn't mention it here, it follows that there would be, if there is no resurrection, then I guess Christ himself lied because he talked about how he would, as he was going to enter into Jerusalem, how he'd be betrayed and how he'd be crucified and killed and how he'd be buried and how he'd be raised on the third day. He said that even before those things transpired so and then we you know then he went through them and rose or whatever we know the truth but ultimately if there's no resurrection Christ lied about everything in advance and everything afterwards I don't know how he would have lied about it afterwards he wasn't alive but I mean it's not just the apostles and witnesses that are liars Christ himself is a liar we have a lying savior who bragged and boasted about his death, burial, and resurrection, and who somehow afterwards was able to pull off one of the greatest David Copperfields in history, or maybe Chris Angels, and somehow appear and continue to lie. Christ is a liar now. I wonder if any of the Corinthians were willing to call Christ a liar, because they were, indirectly. That would have been a good question to ask. So you don't think, you think Christ was lying? Well, uh, you know. He doesn't mention it here, but Christ would have to be a liar as well. And if Christ is a liar, then he would be a sinner like you and me. And his death, burial, and resurrection, that would have been a lie. Point being that everything and anything and everything that he did, if he's a liar, in fact, and he didn't rise... There's no salvific power or effect in his message or in his actions. He's a savior that cannot save. 
if there's no resurrection and if Christ was a liar, then it's, it would be no better than putting me on the cross for your sins. You know who that would save? I don't have the worth or the value in my person as a wicked sinner to save it. I can't even save myself. You nail me to the cross, I'm no better than those thieves that are flanking Jesus on each side. You go to the cross, there's nothing salvific about your sacrifice. It's just one more person dying on a cross. Ultimately, the New Testament writers, they, they would have been lying about the resurrection of Christ because he didn't rise, right? And the apostles and the New Testament, ultimately, everything the apostles said and what they wrote down and recorded for, especially Paul with his, you know, 11 or so, 12, 13 epistles, whatever, the whole New Testament, if Christ doesn't rise, if there's no resurrection, then the whole New Testament is a lie because it's all centered on that event. And I'll take it further. Since the whole Old Testament points to Christ in the New Testament, then the whole Old Testament is a lie because it's directing us toward a Savior who died and is still in a tomb, and that's useless. It's like pointing to David, whom the Jews think is a Savior, and he's dead. The whole New Testament is now a lie. The Old Testament becomes a lie. Everyone who preaches the Old Testament, everyone who preaches the New Testament is a liar, including me. Including me. I want to stop here for now, and I want to make just a few closing statements. You know, I, I'll say this before I get into what I wrote here. I, I, I erased this part, but I'm, I feel I need to share it. I just want to say this, that, that um, I don't, listen to me, I don't put in two to three days of sermon prep for a lie. I don't come down here every week, multiple times a week, to spend time with other men, to preach the gospel from this pulpit. I don't come down, I don't spend that time in sermon prep for a lie. I don't come down here for a lie. I don't come down here to preach a lie. I don't speak with others outside of our context here for a lie. I am what I am because of the resurrection of Christ. I say what I say, especially in this pulpit, because of the resurrection of Christ. I will be what I will be because of the res resurrection of Christ. I don't do any of this for a lie. There's no way. Ask my wife how lazy I am. I'm not putting this kind of juice into some nonsense. 
in order for me to go all in on something, I've got to be convinced. And of all the things that I've invested in through the years, some good, some bad, of all the things that I've ever taken on, of all of the hobbies, of everything that I've ever put my time, talent, and energy into, none of them compare to this gospel. It is the one sure thing that I have in my life. And I owe it all to the resurrection. There is no way this guy would waste his time with a lie. No way. I know me. I'm too lazy for that. So just so you understand, that's my personal view. I don't come down here. I don't put in this work. I don't do this. In fact, it's not just the resurrection. That's not just the reason why I do it or the power that empowers me to do it. It is what keeps me doing it because there are times when I don't want to do it in this flesh. Sitting around feels better. Getting up and getting into that Bible and doing that work, that's a tough thing sometimes. It's all because of the resurrection. My marriage is in place because of the resurrection. The resurrection of Christ made me alive. It raised me and made me a new creation. The old creation that was married to that beautiful woman was destroying our lives. If it hadn't been for his resurrection, I would not be here. We would not be married. There's no way. There's no way we would have made it. And maybe some of you say amen because I understand that. That it is the power of Christ's resurrection that keeps us believing and, and loving each other and staying married and staying faithful. And that's reality. You see, the denial of the resurrection is not just the rejection of a doctrine to me. It's a rejection of how I even came to be. You're denying my own life in Christ. Without it, I'd be nothing. Uh, so we'll just stop with the... Uh, tears and personal testimony and get back into the script. How's that sound? My wife's like, praise the Lord, it makes me awkward when he gets like this. You should take this personally, just so you know. The rejection of the resurrection is not just, oh, they've got weird doctrine. It is an attack on how you are saved and how you became who you are in Christ. It shouldn't just be dismissed as, oh, they have different beliefs. You are assaulting my Savior. Amen? Many of, uh, i got to make the jump now. Many of today's liberal theologians and thinkers are very much like early Gnostics in that they reject resurrection. You may not know this, you may not think about this, but there's a lot of people that call themselves Christians today that reject the resurrection of Christ. 
And they claimed to love Jesus and cherish the morals that he and the apostles taught, but they refute things like resurrection. <laughs> Bart Ehrman is probably the poster child for this movement. Maybe some of you have heard of him. He's the New Testament professor at the University of Northern yeah, North Carolina at Chapel Hill, pretty well-known college. He's a New Testament professor. And he teaches his victims, I mean students. <laughs> Sorry, I know it's not very respectful. His students. He teaches his students that Jesus did not rise from the dead and that his alleged post-death appearances were not actual appearances, but the result of grief hallucinations. Like you can be so sad and so grieved by the loss of something that it causes you to see things. Like 500 men in the first century were so saddened by the death of Christ that they imagined that they saw him. Look, I think that's him. I see it too, Fred. This is what he proposes, and this is what he teaches his victim students. They're not actual appearances. They're grief hallucinations, as in Mary Magdalene and Peter and others were so grief-stricken by the Lord's death, they merely thought they saw him alive. They imagined that he was there. He wasn't actually in the upper room and didn't have a wound to have somebody touch or anything. It was all imagined because they were so sad. All New Testament truth stands or falls together based on the resurrection. If there were no resurrection, Christ would not be risen. We would have a, a dead Savior who cannot give life. Preaching the gospel would be meaningless since it would be a message of salvation that can't actually save anyone. Faith in Christ would be utterly worthless, literally no better than believing in dead charlatans like Buddha, Muhammad, etc. Witnesses and preacher teachers of the gospel would be liars and misrepresenters of God because the entire New Testament either would not exist or would be one big fat lie. As I said, I don't spend that time in sermon prep or coming down here and doing what I do for a lie. I'm not going to invest that kind of time in something like that. I am a result of Jesus Christ's resurrection, and so are you if you are a Christian. We are spiritually alive, new creations, because he rose from the grave and obliterated death. Be encouraged this morning. Our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, is very much alive, very much seated at the right hand of the majesty, and he will, without a doubt, return. He will return because he rose, because he's alive. He will come back to take us up with him and to glorify us. He will raise us into glorified bodies. That is the truth, and that is our hope. I don't care what Bart Ehrman says. Who cares? Truth has been under attack since day one. 